You're listening to a podcast from the British Academy, the UK's national body for the humanities and social sciences. My name is Martin Kemp. I'm Emeritus Professor of the History of Art at the University of Oxford, Trinity College, and I spent quite a lot of time looking at Leonardo da Vinci. You know, the group that Leonardo has is just extraordinary, going across generations, going across people with very diverse interests, and it crosses geography. I mean, I've done programs in Ghana and in Turkey, and this morning I was doing something from Russia. And it is extraordinary, this way in which Leonardo is a central point of reference, more than Michelangelo, more than Raphael. Perhaps Shakespeare rivals him a bit, but it is extraordinary. There's an element of Leonardo which is being famous for being famous. And Mona Lisa is the most famous painting in the world, and it's a kind of self-perpetuating thing. But you can't be famous for being famous indefinitely without some substance. And there's no single absolute answer to it, but basically it's a matter of quality and richness that each of the paintings of Leonardo, each of the mechanical drawings, each of the anatomical drawings is just incredible in terms of its presence and how it works. Very multifaceted. And if you see the things in the original, if you look at the drawings in the original, they reproduce well. You look at the paintings in the original, with the exception of Mona Lisa, which you can't see properly in the Louvre, they do have an extraordinary presence. They have a sort of spine-tingling sense almost of being living things. Even the mechanical diagrams seem to live and move. And this, of course, is across this very wide range. So whether you're interested in engineering, you're interested in medicine, you're interested in geology, you're interested in physics, interested in optics, all these things are all there and all at an incredibly high level. And I can't think of anybody else in the history of culture who does that. Leonardo is uh, a big commercial operator. <laughs> the image of Leonardo, his works appear all over the place. Mona Lisa, the Vitruvian man, the man in the square in the circle, is used to advertise all, all manner of things. Yeah, it's very commercial. Leonardo, of course, was very well paid. I mean, he was the first generation of artists who wanted to be famous. Their agenda was to become famous. Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael cared a great deal about fame and they expected to be well paid. They were not paid as artisans. Leonardo at the end of his life was captured as it were culturally by the King of France, 1516 to 1519. He's in France, put up in a chateau, small chateau, given a huge, huge salary, much bigger than any of the silver servants in France were earning. And he was an ornament of the court. And uh, yeah, he, he became quite a rich person in a way. Michelangelo became rather rich. So these people become gentlemen, they become rich, they become famous. Titian, who works for the Spanish kings, a big, big figure in Europe. So yeah, the commercial element is there. Now Leonardo sells enormous numbers of things. I've just been in Berlin doing a commercial for Wolford, who make tights and other things for women, and you wouldn't expect a, a slightly aged professor to be trotting off to Berlin to make a, a commercial for, for Wolford, but that's where Leonardo takes you. He would be pleased, not by the nonsense, not by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, he'd been very fed up with that, but um, he'd be very pleased to be famous, and to think that 500 years later uh, his name is still on people's lips, he would have been thrilled.
One of the most recent sensations with Leonardo has been the emergence of the Salvatore Mundi from underneath hideous overpaint. I knew a photograph of it and thought that's rubbish, but when it was discovered and cleaned, it of course came out very radiantly and very extraordinarily. The story is amazing of its discovery, but then what happens later is amazing as well. It is sold to a Russian oligarch, Dmitry Rybolovlev, who is a major collector, but he finds the person who's been selling these things to him, a man called Yves Bouvier, who has a series of art stores, had been charging immense markups. I think $50 million It was the markup on the Salvatore Mundi, and he was so fed up he decided to sell it. He sold it via Christie's, and it went for $450 million. That's including the buyer's premium, which is a world record price. But I think it's not a world record price for a work of art. It's a world record price for buying into Leonardo. He breaks all normal rules. The picture was bought at Christie's, uh, seemingly by Abu Dhabi, but it turns out not by the Department of Culture and Tourism, and it's disappeared. £450 million worth of picture has gone. I don't know where it is. Leonardo is always full of surprises. Nothing is ever straightforward with Leonardo, but I'm always surprised what the surprises are. It's a very compelling picture. It's attracted a lot of silly comment from people who haven't seen it, but we do need to see it. It needs to be in an available public collection somewhere. So this is the first new Leonardo painting for 100 years, and, and it's gone. I get a lot of people who claim to have cracked the secret of Leonardo, or more commonly Mona Lisa. People write in and by email and say, I've got this secret, I've managed to find out what Mona Lisa is really about. And they see animals in the landscape and all manner of things. And um, one person who I've been in slightly irritable dialogue with for some time uh, sees Persian writing in Mona Lisa, generally a digital image, and they blow up a digital image, and of course it pixelates and you begin to see things in the degraded image. And he's been arguing that there's Persian writing in Mona Lisa, there's no evidence, of course, Leonardo knew Persian, but it actually tells of Nostradamus's prophecies, these legendary prophecies about what's going to happen in the world. That's not extreme, I get even more extreme things than that, but it is very remarkable, and if the Da Vinci Code had been called the Michelangelo Code, I think it wouldn't have been so effective. Leonardo is so famous, Mona Lisa is so famous, that people can't accept a straightforward explanation. This is the wife of a silk merchant who was also a dealer. He would deal in anything, whether it's leather from Ireland or sugar from Madeira. Anything that would sell, he sold. She came from a, an old-fashioned gentry family and he was new money. And that generates the portrait. Leonardo's father, who was a lawyer, prominent lawyer, although he's an illegitimate son, he was a, his father looked after him rather well, I think. His father worked for Francesco del Giocondo, Mona Lisa Garadini's husband. That's straightforward, but it doesn't do the job. You know, you can't have such a legendary picture, which is admired by so many people and attracts so much speculation, and just have an ordinary story about it. But what with Leonardo, you've got something which is ordinary, which turns into something extraordinary. But the actual circumstances in his biography is fairly straightforward. I get contacted by a lot of people who have theories about Leonardo. And the medics do a lot of this. 
they do medical diagnosis on Leonardo or Mona Lisa. He said that Mona Lisa shows signs of cholesterol, high cholesterol, which is a big white area underneath her eyebrow. This is repaint. It's a damaged area which has been repainted and, and has discoloured. Freud obviously did this psychoanalysis of him, but you can't put Leonardo on the couch. And if you're testing him for attention deficit disorder or something of that sort, he's 500 years gone. You, you really can't test him for that. But one of the things you see with Leonardo is he moves from one area to another, as we would see it. But for him, it's amazingly persistent and consistent. And he doesn't do things quickly. We know that when he was painting The Last Supper, he would go up on the scaffolding and he would sit looking at it for ages and ages. And he would then do some touches, make some small adjustments and go away. That's not attention deficit disorder. It's very contemplative, very slow in that sense. And he was a slow painter. He didn't finish things very often, but that's because he set himself an impossible agenda. He tried to make painting do more than it could do. But uh, yeah, I'm very chary of giving medical diagnoses or psychological diagnoses of Leonardo. The image we have of Leonardo, although it's breaking down a bit now, is somebody who did lots of diverse things. He would do this, he would do that, he would move from this to that and so on. So when Leonardo's range was first really discovered in the late 19th, early 20th century, people thought this is very diverse. So you tended to write about Leonardo as an anatomist, as an engineer, as a military engineer, as a civil engineer, as an architect. And you've got all these Leonardos, Leonardo as something, Leonardo as something else. Everybody says he's a polymath. I've been arguing, and I think this is now where we should be in Leonardo's studies, he's actually a monomath, i.e. he does just basically one kind of thing. And he spreads it out over these areas. There's a common core of interest in nature, in mathematics, in how nature works, the basic laws of nature, whether it's on a cosmic scale or a tiny scale. And all the various bits of nature and all the various bits of art, the bits of engineering he does, are all expressions of this common core. So I don't see diversity in Leonardo. We see diversity if we look at the results. But if you look at what lies underneath his understanding, it's actually a unified field. So for him, painting is a science, it's a scienza, and science involves imagination, it involves fantasia. So it's a unified field of operation. It just happens to be very vast, much wider. Leonardo's legacy is being able to see things in relation to something else. We tend to chop up knowledge nowadays. We don't see the relationship between things. Whereas Leonardo could look at, say, the way that hair curls, and he can look at the way that water goes in vortices, and he would explain how that happens, the weight of the hair, the current of the water, the tendency of hair, some people's hair, and water to revolve, you then get a helix. We wouldn't think of that. One is a static phenomenon, one is a dynamic phenomenon. But this ability to see across boundaries and not to be confined. 
And I think there's a message here. We don't have to get messages from Leonardo, but um, we tend to atomize things now. So everything gets separated out. All our disciplines get separated out. It happens in the British Academy. It happens in the Royal Society. But we really need, for the future of understanding the world and how it operates, we need a sense of unity of things, how they relate to each other. And Leonardo is just wonderful at that.